0: can help your engine run better and last longer you simply pour a can into your gas tank hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season so pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com
1: to learn more hey we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries now if you're like me Enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana. They're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now... Your
2: host, Mark Kenyon.
0: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 16. Today we're joined by Bill Winkie of Midwest Whitetail. And in this episode, we're going to dive into the thrilling but equally frustrating challenge of hunting for a single specific buck. So stick around and enjoy. I'm the one. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. As always, with me is my co-host, Dan Johnson. And joining us as a special guest today is Bill Winky of Midwest Whitetail. Welcome to the show, Bill.
2: Hey, it's good to be here. My pleasure. Excellent.
0: Yeah, we really appreciate you joining. Um, You know, right when me and Dan started the show earlier this year, one of the first people we thought about having on the show was you. So we're excited to have you. And I think, you know, given the fact it's almost August, a lot of people are are really getting the the itch for whitetail hunting, so I think it's perfect that we're going to get to talk to you. And you know, as I mentioned in the intro, you know, you're the creator of MidwestWhitetail.com dot com and the host of Midwest Whitetail TV. Um, but for maybe those that don't know, could you share with us a little bit about you know how you got you know started seriously hunting whitetails and, and how that led to Midwest Whitetail?
2: The you know, I guess you go back a ways when you try to figure out you know when it all started. Obviously. Um, a lot of people who are serious hunters started when they were kids, and I started when I was a kid. Uh, my dad introduced me to hunting. Uh, but the the whitetail bug didn't really catch me until I was in my probably mid-20s, early to mid-20s. Um, where I grew up in northeast Iowa, we had rough grouse, pheasant, uh, a few quail. We did a lot of duck hunting on the Mississippi River. And the deer were just kind of getting going in Iowa back then. Uh, so by the time I graduated from high school in 1982, we didn't have a a real huntable population of deer. Uh, It was a big deal if you saw a deer track, you know, on on a snowy day when you were deer hunting. So it wasn't a resource that really grabbed a lot of people's attention. So it wasn't until later when the populations really started to grow and, uh, you know, the opportunists kind of jumped in there, and I guess I was one of those guys. You know, I saw the the opportunity to to hunt some some big whitetails and had a lot of permission, you know, and knew a lot of people you know, so it was a natural for me to step into that. And, uh, Northeast Iowa is known for the bluff country, the, the cold water streams and, uh, the Mississippi river Valley and all the bluffs around that. So it's, it's beautiful, classic, um, Midwestern whitetail country. So that was kind of my, my beginning point. So I evolved from there where I started writing for hunting magazines and that started in about 1992. And, uh, I did that full time for quite a long time. Uh, I guess it was 2008 when I started Midwest Whitetail, and prior to that, it was 100% uh, writing and photography for the whole preceding years. So, you know, the, the handwriting, I guess, was on the wall with the writing business. It was, it was starting to slow down a lot. Um, you could feel the excitement was coming out of it. You know, the advertising revenue was starting to go into TV. A little bit more. Um, the internet was picking up a little bit, but not much. For some reason, print was just starting to, you know, feel a little bit sick. Um, and and I, I knew it was coming because, you know, I had my finger on that pulse because I was doing so much writing. So I knew that I was either going to be bagging groceries at Walmart here pretty soon, or or I needed to find something <laughs> else. Um, so I'd, it was kind of uh, one of those things where, you know, I didn't feel like we could pull off doing television. You know, I just didn't think that that I had the experience as a host, and, and, uh, you know, I didn't really have a bunch of people beating down my door wanting me to host a show for them. So I thought that it would be easier to do something on the web. Uh, There's no real, you know, standard, so to speak, there. You're not being compared to, you know, the top-notch programming. You're more compared to YouTube, you know, so I felt like we could come in a little bit raw and get away with it. Uh, So we started on the web, and and my thought was to produce something that I would like to watch. And you know I thought about some of my own uh, white-tail hunting heroes, and I thought, you know, if I could only see behind the scenes of what they're thinking about each day when they go in the field, um, that would really help me to understand what they're doing and, and uh, why they're killing some of these deer. So I thought even, you know, for for better or for worse, you know, whether we, we do well or, or don't do well, there's going to be something that we can teach. Uh, so the... The concept of Midwest Whitetail, of course, was to produce the shows online as as close to live as we can get them, and in some cases, you know, we'd kill a deer on Sunday evening and stay up all night, and it'd be, you know, airing on the website Monday morning. Uh, that was an extreme example, but we've had a number of those over the years where we've killed one day, and, and it was, you know, up on the web the next day with all the lessons and the adventure of that hunt. Wow. So, anyway, that was, that was where it started. uh. And, and it kind of grew from there as we gained more skill and more confidence. Um, it evolved into the television show. And, and we, still, we still like the web uh, better than the television show because, you know, it's so much more casual. Um, we just feel like it's really comfortable, whereas television tends to be sometimes uh, a little bit more, you know, confining, uh, if you want to call it that. You know, we don't get to produce exactly what we want to. We have to build everything into a certain framework. And then uh you know you can't you can't stray too far from the norm where you start to look like you know you're an amateur, so you kind of have to be you know kind of clean and professional and you know we <laughs> we just feel more comfortable letting our hair down and, and doing the stuff on the web um so we'll never get away from probably doing both you know as long as there's outdoor television uh we'll probably have midwest White hill t v but um, we really do enjoy the web uh, better than that because it's, it's just so much more fun to produce.
0: Yeah, well, it sure has seemed to d- to have done well for you guys. And, and a kind of a story, on my end, back in the fall of 2009, I had a job that took me out to California um, for the entire hunting season. And so I was just dying not being able to be in the woods, not being back home in the, in the Midwest. And every day I came home from work and I watched a new episode of MidwestWhitetail.com. And uh, that was when I first discovered you guys. And it, I, I got to tell you, you really helped me just survive that fall. It really helped out. So um, what you guys are doing is pretty great. And it, I can definitely um, attest to that. So
3: Yeah, I, thank you. I appreciate it. Midwest Whitetail is probably the reason at work that I have low productivity. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I had, here's another funny story. I had a guy uh, email me one time that uh, his buddy got fired because he was watching Midwest Whitetail at work. And he was just, <laughs> I thought, ooh, we know we want people to watch, but we don't want them to get fired. Right. <laughs> so there's, there's people losing their job over over what we're producing on the web. That's Thanks funny. a lot,
0: Bill Winky. Yep. Yeah, funny.
2: no doubt. Now he probably hates me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I actually, um, you know, it kind of ties into what we want to talk about today, but the your final hunt for the double G four buck when that episode came out and I found out there was online, I ended up watching it while I was at work too. And people were looking over my shoulder like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm sorry, this is important. I need to watch this right now. (laughs) So, Uh, so that that said,
2: that said, that was um, an epic drama. That, that whole hunt uh, was pretty amazing because the deer was tailor made for video because he was so visible. And, uh, you know, I, I had so many people that were following along on that story. It was pretty amazing.
0: Oh, yeah. And that's that's exactly what we wanted to get into today was to talk about the double G4 buck and your hunt for for one specific deer. But before we get into that, we do usually like to kind of throw a curveball just to kick things off a little bit. So, Dan, I know you've got kind of a crazy question you wanted to ask Bill to to get us off on the right foot.
3: All right. So this is obviously for everybody, but... Bill, if you could share a hunt with any person or fictional character, past, present, or future, who would it be?
2: So, who, who, who would I go hunting with? That's correct. Oh, gosh. You know, the cop-out answer, of course, is to say, well, I want to go hunting with my son or something like that. And, and, and you know, I think if I only had one hunt for the rest of my life, I'm sure I'd want to spend it with a family member. And most people would but let's just throw that one out and say that one's too easy. Yep. <laughs> I think it'd be fun to go deer hunting with Jack Nicholas. Nice. Uh, that's who I think, because I know he likes deer hunting. And, uh, you know, I I loved golf, you know, from the, I guess when I was 18 years old, I took the game up and just fell in love with it. And of course, back then, Jack was the man. Um, so it'd be kind of fun to, to get on some kind of common ground and, and I could pick his brain about what it's really like, you know, playing professional golf and we could have some fun hunting deer, but... Um, I've never, I've never met him. I've heard that he's a pretty serious deer hunter, so that'd be a fun one.
3: Wow, I didn't expect that answer. That's a good answer. A good what one. about what about you, Mark?
0: Ah, uh, well, I didn't see this till just now either, so I'm kind of thrown for a loop. But I think the first person that came to mind for me when I'm thinking about hunters in the past, it would be pretty cool to spend some time with Teddy Roosevelt given his hunting experience and, and his conservation work and kind of everything he's done and that's kind of led to the North American hunting experience that we have today, I think it'd be pretty cool to, to spend some time in the woods with him. So I think that's yeah. who I'd pick. Maybe.
2: Right. If he'd be quite a leader, I'm sure it'd be fun to see how he, you know, how he handled himself.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. How about you? Well,
3: <laughs> well, I went off the deep end with this one. Uh, <laughs> mine is a fictional character. And uh, if you've seen the movie Point Break with Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze, I would <laughs> I would love to go hunting with Bodie, Patrick Swayze's character, the <laughs> bank-robbing
2: surfer. Oh, oh,
0: only only you, Dan. Only you. That's, so,
2: <laughs> that's, I, think I love, you'd I ask love me that for, movie. If you'd asked me for my top 2,000, I wouldn't have come up with that one. <laughs> yeah.
3: That's, okay, well, uh let's hang up right now then. I guess we have
0: nothing else to talk
2: about. <laughs> it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Well, I've certainly seen the movie, I just don't think I would have want would have picked him as a hunting partner.
0: <laughs> oh jeez. Well, with that said, then um maybe we should we should move into the original topic being hunting one specific buck and as we talked about just a few minutes ago, your hunt for the double G four buck was really, like you said, an epic drama and a perfect example of this kind of situation. So maybe to to kick off this conversation, you know, could you share with us maybe a, a brief high level overview of that story of your hunt for the G four buck, and then we can dive into some specific tactics and and things that happened along the way.
2: Yeah, I will. The the deer when I first started uh, following him, let's say, was a was a three year old. I didn't try to kill him that year, but he looked pretty good. He was probably mid-140s, then he had two G4s side-by-side on both of his beams, and that's how he got his name. Well, the next year, as a 4-year-old, his one side, I can't remember which side now, I think it was his right side was withered a little bit. His left side, if he would have matched up his left side, he'd probably been high 160s, pushing 170, 10-pointer, but now he only had one g 4 you know, so everybody kind of asks me, well, why did you have such a dumb name for this deer? Well, <laughs> when we first started following the deer, he had two G4s on each side. But so anyway, I tried to kill him as a four-year-old and since then I've kind of changed my tune a little bit on the age when I started hunting him, but it wouldn't really have mattered with that deer because he didn't, he didn't really give us uh, a lot of opportunities. I saw him twice. That would have been during the 2009 season uh, and, and hunted him pretty much every day. You know, I, I would say I was open to you know, the, the, the field a little bit too, other bucks that might come by. But I was trying to stay as close to the area where I thought he lived as I could. Saw him twice through the whole season, got a few trail camera pictures all at night. Um, so he was pretty tough, pretty tough to pin down. Uh, so then the next year, so he would have been a five-year-old in 2010. Is that right? Yeah. And he made a big jump um, from uh, – from four to five. He was probably just under 180 as a five-year-old, really pretty 10-pointer, and didn't see him at all. hunted him pretty much nonstop the whole season, got some trail camera pictures of him all at at night in the dark. So basically as a five-year-old, he was a ghost. Um, Then as a six-year-old, this would be 2011, that was when he grew his biggest frame. Uh, He was right around 205-ish. Uh, At that point, a big six-by-five frame with short brows. I mean, he's putting it all into his twos and threes and fours. Uh, So he had really long times, real long beams. I can't remember all the dimensions exactly, but, you know, when you saw him step out, it was like, holy, you know, (laughs) that frame just grabbed your attention. So um, he was quite a lot more visible as a six-year-old. In fact, a lot of times he would be the first deer that came out into the field in the evenings And I had a lot of encounters with him. Uh, I think I had two encounters within 40 yards, three encounters within 40 yards that year. Um, One only got one shot off, hit him up high in the hump. It was just a, you know, he ducked the string a little bit, and, and, you know, I was probably a little bit out of sorts, uh, you know, maybe a slight bit of buck fever with the way that the the situation went down, trying to shoot out of a ground blind and having to jump from window to window. And, you know, my my wits weren't really – you know, just lined up perfectly. So anyway, I hit him and lost him. And that was a late season hunt. That was an early January hunt. And he popped right back up again on the same food plot right after the season closed. So a couple days after the season closed, I had trail camera pictures of him back again. So I knew he was fine. Ran the camera there uh, over corn until he shed. And I, I knew which one he was because he had a little notch out of his ear and he had like a black spot on his face. So I could tell, you know, even without antlers, which deer he was and as soon as i got a few pictures of him or the first day without antlers we went in there and we found both sides um i think he scored 95 and 92 uh, with the two sides and uh of course that was you know now he was under my skin after hunting him that much and holding the antlers and getting a shot at him and and, you know making a high hit and losing him Um, so the next year it was kind of all out you know, it was all out in, 2000, in 2011 too, but by 2012, you know, we had him pretty well zeroed in. And you uh, know, to make a long story short, you know, I had a number of encounters with him in 2012, and finally killed him. I think it was the 3rd of November, uh, hunting out of a tree stand. And his core area, or let's say his his entire range, continued to shrink as he got older. So he was seven years old when I killed him, um, and he was probably living in about. Not much more than 30 acres, I don't think. You know, because we ran cameras enough around there that if he would have been traveling outside of that area, we'd have been picking him up here and there, you know, at least occasionally, and we never did. You know, we had to go right in there in order to get pictures of him, and then it was just nonstop pictures. I mean, he was very, very visible within that that small range. Um, And again, you know, as a seven-year-old, he was probably the most visible, one of the most visible deer on the whole farm. So... That made him, you know, tailor-made for video. If he was giant, and when I killed him, he scored 206. You know, he actually scored a little bit higher, you know, total growth score, but it was more massive and a few more sticker points. And he lost some of that, just you know, that size of that frame, you know, the big long tines and long beams. Everything kind of shrank down just a little bit, but he got a little bit heavier. But anyway, uh, he was tailor-made for what we were doing, you know, with the online video because. I'd say at least a coin toss. If we went into the area where we planned to hunt him, that we would see him that evening. And you know, how often are you going to hunt a 200 plus plus inch deer where you know 50% chance that he's going to come out? <laughs> I mean, it's That's crazy. It's nuts. You know, so we got a chance to learn a lot um, from that deer, and and there's a lot of strategies that went into it. You know, I could I could probably talk for two hours about you know some of the trade-offs and and some of the decisions that I made you know with respect to where to run cameras and how often to check them and and you know when to make the move you know when when i had an idea of where he was and stuff like that i mean there was there was a lot that went into that hunt but you know it's it's something that a fair amount of it is just common sense more than anything i guess if there's a real lesson in it because his his range was so small i was super conservative and even though sometimes I'd have a pattern on him in the middle of his range, you know, I had a camera right down in a little valley, and I think five days in a row he walked past that camera on a on a crossing over a ditch. It was just a tube that we put in to get from one little small field to another with the equipment. I had a camera on there, and I think five days in a row he walked through there an hour before sunset. Um, you know, and I was pulling the camera every day or every couple of days. You know, it would have been really tempting to say, oh, gosh, we need to be down there but then you run the risk of swirling winds or something like that, you know, giving you away. So we just stayed very conservative as we hunted him and just figuring that, you know, the deer is probably not going to leave this range because, you know, he's spent so much time in there now and I've never seen him leave. So it doesn't make any sense to get real aggressive with him and, and, you know, kind of put him off his daylight activity. We just bided our time and finally got lucky enough to get a, a good clean shot at him. But, uh, Anyway, that's uh, you know, I could, like I said, I can I can go on for a couple hours on some of the trade-offs. But I'll just I'll let you throw a couple questions at me if something jumps out at you.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Like you said, we we'd love to talk here with you for about this for two hours, but if we since we've got limited time, what do you think were the you know the two biggest takeaways you know that came out of this that you think could be applied to someone out there, um, you know who has spotted a deer this summer. Let's say he knows that this is the one, and and this year. I'm not going to shoot any deer but this one. For that guy or girl, you know, what would you say would be the two most important lessons you could share with them right now to help them achieve that goal this summer or this fall?
2: Well, the, the most frustrating, some of the most frustrating uh, frustrated I've ever been was the year that I hunted him every day for like 60 or so days and, and or more and never saw him. Um, Jeez. So one thing I'd say is I wouldn't get super serious about a buck until he starts showing daylight activity. And that's something that I've definitely changed you know, over the past three or four years. I used to find a great big deer or, or you know, a bigger-than-average buck, something I wanted to shoot, and I would start hunting him. And I didn't really pay that much attention to what time of the day I was getting the pictures. And now uh, that's the first thing I look at. You know, I don't even care how big he is, but I want to know, is, is he killable? So I'm always trying to figure out you know, which bucks uh, on, on our farm are actually killable. So that's priority number one, I think. If you're running trail cameras quite a bit, um, focus in on the ones that are killable because really at the end of the day, you know, this is supposed to be fun. And, you know, if you're sitting there, you know, day after day after day waiting on a buck that's basically a ghost, um, that's not really that much fun. You know, maybe you'll get him, maybe he'll slip up, you know, but if he's not showing any evidence of moving during the day, you know, he's very unlikely to, to, you know, all of a sudden – You know, the only exceptions in my mind are that little brief window when the first doe in his core area comes into estrus. You know, so you're looking at getting lucky and catching that, but sometime between, let's say, the 31st of October and the 5th or 6th or something like that of November, maybe the 7th. You know, somewhere in there, you know, he's likely to to mess up. And then uh, that first really hard cold snap um, after the rut, uh, a lot of times you can get bucks that will... That haven't been moving at any other time in daylight, you can get them out in the open. Um, But other than that, I don't like to hunt a buck that's not showing some daylight activity on the trail cameras.
1: Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto, do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater.
2: And, and then the next step is um, is just trying to figure out as much as you can about the the range of the deer, uh, because what you're really looking for is the place where you've got an advantage. You know, you, you don't necessarily want to say, "Well, he's if you know, he's going through here." Like I said, you know, I knew he was going through that one ditch crossing almost every day, an hour before the end of legal shooting time. Um, that didn't really help me that much because I, I knew I couldn't hunt him there, uh, you know, without potentially messing the spot up. So you gotta you gotta spread your net wide enough where you get a pretty good sense of of uh the range, the full range that the deer's using. Um uh, and also what time of the day he's using those parts of his range. So I don't know, you just gotta learn a lot and, and truck cameras are really good for that. I mean you can learn a ton, you know, running cameras and you know, I was always really careful, you know, trying to make sure that I kept the cameras away from uh I think we're gonna get an interruption here. I hear the U P S man coming down the driveway. Um but uh <laughs> He's uh yep, there he is. Um, I'll head him off and keep him from jumping in here with whatever he's dropping off. But the, uh so the, the, the main thing is you've got to find a place where he's killable and you've got to find a buck that's killable. And there's a lot of ways you can do that, you know, and, and some of it's just common sense and some of it's stuff that we've learned the hard way, you know, over the years, you know, on, on different strategies for running the cameras, you know, whether you put it over bait, you put it over trails whether you use you know, the time lapse or field scan mode on a food plot and, and check the camera every day. You know, what's the trade off between where you put the camera versus the possibility of educating the deer? So it's all kind of a little delicate, maybe an almost an art, um, to figuring out how you can learn as much as you can without educating the buck. Um, did I get long winded on you there?
0: No, no, that's uh that's the stuff I'm particularly interested in as well. And I think our, our listeners probably are as well. And I think it'd be great if maybe you could dive into a little bit more just about specifically how you use those cameras. Because like you said, that's a tool that I think is is perfect for this type of kind of mission or project is, is patterning a single buck. But yeah, I think sometimes people struggle. Like you said, there's a lot of give or takes there. Um, so yeah, what have you I, found?
2: I could walk you through exactly what I did with this deer but I think every situation is going to be a little bit different. That's why it turns into an art rather than a science, um, because you kind of have to factor the personality of the deer in when you're trying to figure out, you know, how to go about, uh, you know, running the cameras on him. But uh, this one, I started out, he was covering a lot of ground at first, the first few years that I hunted him and I wasn't picking up very many pictures of him anywhere, but the whole key is, again, you got to have enough cameras in enough locations, and there should be sort of like key areas, maybe every, I mean, I was probably every 20 acres with a camera, I would guess. And in Iowa, it's legal to put a camera uh, on a corn pile, as long as you don't hunt anywhere near there or any trails leading to it. Um, in some states, that's not legal to put a camera over bait. So it's a little, it takes a little bit longer to get an inventory and, and uh, you know, to figure out what's going on. But you can do that by running the cameras over small feeding areas, the back end of a, of a larger field, or maybe a food plot, uh, putting cameras on creek crossings and stuff like that. I mean, there's still ways to do it. You just have to stay away from the bedding areas. I guess that's what it boils down to. Um, I, I didn't take any risks at all with the areas where I knew that he was, or figured that he was bedding. And every time I went in to check a camera, I always wore waders. And that way I didn't leave any scent. Um, you know, a good... A good set of PVC waders will cost you like 40 bucks or 50 bucks or whatever it is at Cabela's. And that's the cheapest insurance that you can buy for not leaving any scent. You can walk through waist high grass. Um, You can do a lot of stuff, climb fences. You can do all kinds of stuff in those uh, tall waders and you don't leave any scent behind. Um, So, you know, there's a couple things there. The other, you know, my thing was always to start wide, start with a big net um, and, and you try to figure out. You know where is the full range of this deer? You know, like we've talked about that real quick, and then as you start to figure that out, thank you. You're welcome. Have day. As you start to figure that out, then you narrow in, and you start to close in on those areas where you know. Okay, this is his range. You know, there's no point in keeping running these cameras clear out over here because I'm getting you know every day or just about every day here, here, and here. Um, so then you start zeroing in and you say, okay, where else? You know, how's he coming into the field? Uh, so you look at the first sequence of photos that you get in the evening, and and, uh, and you can see that his butt is pointing towards the north every time, you know, in the first couple of photos that you get. So you figure, okay, he's, he's betting someplace to the north of here. You might want to drop a camera someplace on that end of the opening, that end of the field, maybe a trail, you know, or, or somehow try to work backwards um, to anticipate maybe where he's betting at. And, and little by little, you can kind of construct, the whole story Um, and some deer are more programmable than others the older they get it seems like the the more patternable they are which seems you know the opposite of what we've been taught over the years but I've certainly seen it here you know many many times you know the older they get the easier they get to pattern and the easier they get to kill Um, past age five you know it seems like you know three they're fairly easy to kill at four and five they can be really tough to kill them and it seems like at six they start to get easier again Um, you know, just in a lot of parts of the country, unfortunately, the deer never get to be sick. So, you know, people don't get a chance to, to see that take right. play. Um, so anyway, um, I, I then will narrow in on some specific spots where I think I've got a chance to kill him. And then I, I'm completely away from any kind of bait by this point. You know, I mean, I'm not I'm not running bait on cameras. Once I've sort of narrowed in on, on where I want to try to hunt the deer at because uh, I don't want to have any issues with, you know, any, any baiting issues. Um, so I'm either running on trails or I'm more than likely, um, near a opening or a food source with the camera on what's either the field scan mode or the time-lapse mode, depending on the camera. And it just takes the picture, you know, for me, I want a picture as, as as often as I can get one, but most cameras are set for a minute. Um, so if that's the case, sometimes I'll put two cameras out so they're out of phase, you know, so I'll get one you know, maybe every 30 seconds you know, rather than every minute. Because, you know, a deer can walk across an opening in, in a minute, and, and you don't get
0: right, it. Right, right.
2: So I might put one on one end facing in and one camera on the other end facing in, and I've got them both set to this time-lapse mode, and then I'll pull the card. I'll literally pull the card every day, um, speak in there at noon with my waiters on, pull the cards, look at them. I've even gone so far as to as to go in, you know, with the cameraman and, the, and the, uh, all of our stuff, and bring a laptop, and if he, if I didn't see any daylight activity, we we leave. <laughs> we don't <Wow. laughs> hunt. But if, if there was daylight activity, we climbed into a tree. So, you know, that's the whole thing is is just trying to figure out, you know, where is he moving during the day. And as soon as I'm getting daylight activity and a buck I want to hunt, um, that's when I would be a, a lot more aggressive and make my move. Up until then, I just I'm just sort of watching and waiting. Um, you know, it sounds. Like maybe I'm not spending very much time in the tree, but there's always other bucks you can hunt, too. You know, and if if you've only got one tag and one deer in mind, it doesn't do any good to be out there in the field if all you're doing is messing it up. Uh, Sounds bad, but you're better off sitting at home than you are out there, you know, beating around, you know, uh, leaving scent and and potentially uh, educating deer that aren't moving during the day. Yeah. Um, Just put your time in, you wait, and then as soon as the deer gives you the green light, then you make your move.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a hard lesson to learn, but I think you know I, I'm just starting to come up on that in my own experience too. Is that it's it's a lot more about the quality of the hunt versus the quantity, and uh, yeah, makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah, a handful of really good hunts is way better than than thirty mediocre hunts.
0: So true, so, so true. You
2: your odds of success are going to be better.
0: So so, Bill, I know you've got a yeah, hard stop.
2: Done a lot of
0: yeah, I know you've got a hard stop on time here coming up soon. Um but but really quick, Dan, did you have any thoughts or questions on this before we uh say goodbye to Bill here?
3: Yeah, I really like to talk about failure and how uh people can learn from uh learn from their mistakes. Um obviously you are successful with the G four buck, but on a hypothetical question, or uh how would your your actions have changed if you found out like your neighbor killed the um the g4 buck or another or he died or he stopped showing up on trail cameras do you have a, a plan b
2: usually i'll have an, another buck or something that i'm that i've got in the back of my mind um i'm not too hung up i mean i was hung up on that deer for sure uh because you know after hunting him for that many hours and that many days that many years you know i, I really wanted to get him plus he was really big you know and it was cool uh but you know, in, in you know, to stay on that subject real quick, I was kind of sad when I killed him though. It really did take a lot of wind out of my sails. Not because you know I I, I only wanted to kill a deer that big again. That wasn't it. It was because it was such a, a fun hunt. You know, those years, that quest for that buck was so much fun. It was so consuming. It was so entertaining. And then when he was gone, I was like, gosh, you know, I got to find you know, something else to take his place because that was a lot of fun. Um, so. Anyway, I've usually yeah. got more than one in mind. Uh, so if something happens to one, I'll move on. But I've made a lot of mistakes even with that deer. Um, you know, so it's not, you know, I was ultimately successful, but I had a lot of failures along the way. And I, I think that's a good lesson for people too is that, you know, you're you're going to have a lot of failures in this game. And the failures that, that are best are the ones where the deer don't know what happened. If if they know that a person in that tree inflicted you know some kind of fear uh, or you know injury they're going to be a lot harder to kill uh, in the future and i was really lucky with that deer was he never really figured out what was going on i don't think he knew in that whole four years that he was being hunted um so even when i screwed up it was you know he, he just never quite figured it out um which is good but you know there there's a lot of there's a lot of mistakes along the way for sure and, and every every mistake teaches a lesson and uh, I think that's the main thing too, you know, we, we just keep learning every year. Uh, I always try to figure out at the end of every season what I learned that year that I want to either do better or avoid doing the next season uh, because, you know, I just want to keep getting better at it because I I like shooting these things, you know, and, and uh, I, it's fun to learn. It's fun to figure out what the deer are doing and, and you know, the best ways to put yourself in the right spot.
0: So true. That's, uh, that is what it's all about. Just, uh, gosh, they find a way to, to screw us up a whole lot, but when we do figure it out, it's pretty rewarding. That's for sure. So, so Bill, I know yeah. you've got, you've got a hard stop here, so I want to be respectful of that time and, and let you go here, but thank you, you know, so, so much for joining us. This has been really interesting.
2: Yeah, no, my pleasure. And, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly happy to, to uh, jump on again sometime if you if you want me. And, and uh, you know, today was just a tough one. I've got a couple things coming up here I've got to go do, so, uh, um, you know, I'm going to have to run. But, you know, otherwise, you know, just check back with me and I'd, I'd love to join you guys again.
0: Sounds great, Bill. Well, we'll be sure to include links to MidwestWhitetail.com on the blog post for this podcast, and we'll direct people to check out the TV show too. So thanks again, Bill.
2: Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Take care, guys. You too. Yep, have a good one.
0: Well, that was uh that was really interesting and I, I wish we could have talked to Bill for longer because I could have listened to him talk about this topic for like you said, two hours. But that said, Dan, you know what what did you think about this?
3: Well, I think the the point that is trying to be made here is or that I that I got from it is you have to be patient to kill a giant. And uh, he definitely played his cards right. Um, like he said, he made a mistake. But when he made his mistakes, they were good mistakes. You can learn from it. The, they didn't spook the deer, didn't leave the property. Uh, it didn't really know, like he said, it was being hunted. But I think patience going in after these things is, is kind of a trend that we're starting to see here with all this, all these people that we're talking to.
0: Yeah, so true. And that's, you know, I think it's so true no matter if you're hunting any deer, but especially if you're hunting one specific deer is you've got this strange um, con- conflict of two things you want to do. You, you want to gather as much information as possible, right? You need trail camera pictures. You need sightings. You need observation data to figure out, okay, where do I need to be to kill this deer, this one deer? But at the same time, because you have one deer you're going after, the chances of blowing it are so much more astronomical than if you were after 10 different deer. So, you've got to be so much more right. careful. So, it's a, a really fine line you're walking. And it's I think that's though why it right. makes it so exciting and fascinating and fun to do that. And um, you know, I, I just recently got to experience something like this for the first time, you know, hunting um one deer that the deer I killed this past December for 3 years and not to the degree that bill had it but i was able to to learn some of his specific patterns and figured out some of the the certain areas that he was consistently traveling to and the consistent areas i believed he was betting in and then you know i had to do exactly what bill said and that's be really careful about when i hunt that property where i thought he was living because i thought if i screw up once maybe twice it's it's game over so in my case, I was just really particular about when I was going to hunt. Uh, I hunted the first two days of the season, well, the first two, first two weekend days of the season, and then I didn't come back and hunt again till the very end of October um, because I was just waiting for, you know, there wasn't a big cold front I could hit on, so I decided to just wait till that little pre-rut action started and um, just went in a handful more times after that. And I still screwed up plenty of things, but I learned a lot from that deer, and, and the fact that I ended up killing him... Um, Interestingly, not exactly where I was planning on killing him, but I still still was able to get a shot at him. I definitely took some things away from that experience that um, kind of fall right in line with what Bill said. And now, this year, I'm, I'm just really hopeful that uh, the old leaner, the buck I've been hunting, well, the, the secondary buck, other than 6 year that's been around here for two years, this will be my third year after him, he'll be an absolute absolute giant if he's still around so i'm I'm still waiting hoping he'll show up on camera one of these days but we'll see
1: now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often is the case those guys were on to something And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today, or visit us at o'reillyauto.com/meat eater. That's o'reillyauto.com/meat eater. Yeah, I've
3: had, I've, I know exactly what he's talking about. I there was a deer I, I called shipwreck, and um, I think I've talked to you about uh, him, and oh, yeah. I had an encounter with him as a. I don't shoot. I don't even know anymore. He was, I, I shot him and he was probably 210 inches and never found him. And I had followed that deer for four years. The fifth year, the neighbor shot him and was on the cover of North American whitetail. So, so I put all my eggs in the basket for that, for that buck. And it paid off when I had the encounter with him. But I almost think that I spent too much time hunting that deer and not going after others um, just yeah. because it, it's almost like I became obsessed with him. I literally thought about that deer every day for f- almost four years.
0: And it brings up a good, a good question. You know, now that we've talked to Bill and he talked about how to target one specific deer and how to go about hunting a deer, but, you know, should you try to hunt one specific deer? And the question being, like you just said, you know, is it worth is all the excitement and the drama and everything leading up to trying to kill that one deer worth the obsession and the struggle and, um, you know, the, maybe the heartbreak in the case of, you know, where your deer was shot by someone else. You know, what do you think now that you've looked back, um, you're saying maybe it wasn't worth it.
3: Well, for this particular instant, it, everything, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything because I learned so much in that four year period hunting that, hunting that deer that, it's made me the kind of hunter that I am today. I was willing to eat my tag and I still am willing to eat my tag every year I go hunting if I don't find a deer that makes my jaw drop or makes me get the shakes. And I have a little bit higher standards than, than a lot of people. And that's not to sound cocky or anything, it's just the way I hunt. I don't need to kill to have a successful hunting season. But I also I don't know it's it's just it's hard to explain because you want to you want to have these memories uh, you know when you get older and have these these mounts or racks or anything but at the same time you can't kill and it all comes back to you can't kill a giant if you're shooting small deer.
0: Very true. It's all about uh, that choice. So you wanna
3: yeah yep. So, what do you think... So, the... <laughs> go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, what do you think, you know, was that the single greatest lesson from a hunting perspective? Actually, you know, tactic-wise, when you were hunting shipwreck, what was it that you took away from that that you think you can apply to future hunts?
3: Man, it's one of those things that you can't... You just need experience with big deer to... I'm not joking when he stepped out and I had him at 22 yards at full draw, I was shaken so bad that I don't, I, it's like you, you, it was such an adrenaline dump that I was, I couldn't remember the encounter. It took me, it took me like hours and hours to recall what had actually happened (laughs) because, and, and as you get more experience with bigger deer, You know some of these these professional hunters, if you want to call them these celebrities, they've had such encounters with you know so big of so many encounters with these big deer that it looks like they're not enjoying it. But you know that uh, you know that saying, "Act like you've been there," if you win a championship or something like that. Yeah, that's how you have to act when a big buck's in there. Because if you let your emotions get the best of you, then then you've already lost. Because that's that's exactly what happened to me. All those four years of anticipation finally came to a head, and I I blew the shot. I mean, I shot him high. And that's 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 user error. That's me.
0: Yeah. Well, I gotta say though, I, I gotta commend you because if if I had a two hundred and ten inch or whatever buck in front of me, I probably don't even know if I'd hit the dang thing. So,
3: well, I mean, it's it's one of those things. You know, not a lot of not pe- people are not everyone's going to experience that. No, um, I was luck- lucky enough to experience that, and um, I, I learned from it. And I take every lesson that I learned from that. De- that deer had so much patience. I watched him stop on a hot dough. Like you know how typically deer will just uh, buckle, chase a hot dough right through everything. Yep. This hot dough came through an opening. He stopped. Where the where the I don't know the it became thick and started opening up, and he stopped right in all that thickness, observed the area, felt something wasn't right, and I had the wind, I had everything in my advantage, and he decided to walk along the thick stuff and cut these uh, does off on a different angle, and that was another time where I was just like, oh my god, these guys don't take shortcuts these deer are patient because they know that everything out in the woods is trying to kill them that's how they live their lives so it's uh it's nuts it's nuts and i hope this leaner buck shows up for you because um i know how, how much you know time and energy you've put into to that deer as well
0: yeah that would be it would be really really cool that's for sure um yeah i think now over the last two years, I've I've got so much history with him that if I got a third, it would be probably even a cooler story than it was for for the six shooter, uh, the deer I shot last year. So I don't know. We'll see. He uh, he usually shows up late in the summer, so I've still got a little bit of hope. But you never know. You never know. But right. It'll be it'll be interesting if we uh, if I get that to have that opportunity. The the stories that we'll be able to share over the coming podcast episodes this fall will be pretty exciting. So I don't know.
3: And I th- I think that, I think the most important thing Bill said today was casting a wide net and narrowing it down because, you know, and that's if you have the resources, if you have multiple trail cameras, if you have um, the time, you know, he obviously lives near his properties and he can, he can be there all the time. And that's what he does for a living. I mean, he's a, he's a professional hunter. Other people have to rely on trail cameras and you know, setting up observation stands on the weekends, if that's the only time they get a hunt. It's just how you use the resources that are given, given to you and how, you know, how you go about the deer. Cause like he said, every deer is different. It has different personalities and um, you just have to be smart enough to learn from, you know, learn from that deer, or learn from any failures that you may uh, have in that uh, pursuit.
0: Yeah. And like you said, I think in this cut in this type of case, you need to have those proper expectations that there are gonna be a lot more failures than successes. Mm-hmm. Um even more so than you know, moving up from shooting any deer, shooting a, a decent deer, then from that to a mature deer, then from that to a you know, a certain specific deer. It gets harder and harder no matter how much time you have or what kind of resources resources you have, it's a, a serious challenge. And yeah, you gotta make sure that's the right thing for you. Don't I would you know, I wouldn't tell anyone to do that. Unless they're sure that that's what they're comfortable with and that's what's going to make them happy, um, right? So it's an interesting topic and one that, like I said, maybe we'll get to dive into more deeply this coming fall if if either one of us gets uh, any return visitors, we'll see what happens.
3: Oh yeah, I got a. I checked my trail cameras this weekend and I got a couple return uh, uh, shooters from last year and um, got some trail camera, new trail camera set up. I got a new tree stand set up this weekend and some sweet pinch points and uh, and uh, I can ju- I can't wait to get in the stand for the first time. Ugh. It's I'm drooling.
0: It's gonna be here before we know it too. It's coming fast. You know, by the time this episode goes live, it will be well, maybe not. Well, <laughs> it'll be really close to being August. So and August just flies by. And usually, I don't like to go in the woods at all until uh, or once September hits. I'm done. I like to give it at least a good hard month with nobody in there um, just before the season starts. So that's going to be before I know it. And I am not ready yet. So I really got to get out there and do some work. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, we have, you know, my mule deer hunt and your elk hunt uh, in September. That'll keep us out of the woods for a while yep. anyway.
0: Very true. Very true. Well, I think this is a, a good spot for us to wrap it up too. So, you know, for all of you guys that were listening with us today, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Bill. And, you know, we definitely did and hopefully learned a few things. I know that Dan and I are going to take some some different lessons learned from this conversation. And we'll hopefully get Bill on a future show when he can speak with us a little bit longer as well. Um, you know, as always, hope you did enjoy the show. And if you did, we'd love to see a rating or review on iTunes. We keep getting more, you know, every week and we appreciate that. and We love hearing the different types of feedback. So thanks in advance for doing that. And we, of course... I want to also thank our partners who have helped a ton to keep, you know, wired to going. And now to help us launch the podcast. Um, you know, I know you hear it all the time on TV shows and in magazines, but this really is what keeps us going. So we appreciate them. So big thanks to Sitka gear, Bushnell optics, trophy, Ridge, bear archery, redneck blinds carbon express arrows lacrosse boots big and j long range attractants and the whitetail institute of north america and we will include a few links um, that we talked about today with with bill on wired to hunt.com episode 16 so be sure to check that out and you know of course if you aren't already sign up for our newsletter we'll get different updates to you which will be increasing a lot more as we get closer to the season as well so thank you again wired Hunt nation we appreciate you can't tell you how much it means to us that you joined us today hope you enjoyed it and have a really really great week thanks a lot
4: Well, I thought that was pretty great and hope you did too. And that
0: will wrap things up for us here today on the Wired Hunt Podcast. So thank you so much for joining us. As always, if you enjoyed the show today, we would really appreciate it if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes. And even if you didn't enjoy it, we'd still love to hear your feedback. Thank you in advance for taking the time to do that. Speaking of thanks, we'd also like to thank our excellent partners who helped make this show possible. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Bushnell Optics, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck blinds, Carbon Express arrows, Lacrosse boots, Big & J long-range attractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. That said, be sure to visit WiredHunt.com/episode15 to view the show notes from today's episode, and that's where we'll include all the links that we mentioned today. And if you're new, definitely head over to WiredHunt.com to sign up for our Whitetail Fix newsletter. That's where you're going to get all different updates on what's new and interesting on the blog. So with that all out of the way thanks again, Wired Hunt Nation. And until next time, have an awesome week. Keep on living the dream, chasing those whitetails, and as always, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.
4: First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They are warm, breathable, silent, and odor resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, All of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com.